It's been wonderful for me to meet over these last couple of weeks, almost, um, almost at every service, people who have not been a part of the body physically for about the last year, but now are feeling comfortable to physically be back with us. And if that's you this morning and I have not had a chance to meet you, can I just say, welcome back. We are really glad that you are here and glad that you feel comfortable in, in being here. And for those of you that are still online watching us in our live stream, we look forward to that day when we also can have you back and being a part physically here in our worship service this morning. Now, before we jump into God's Word, and if you want to take a moment, go ahead and turn to the last few verses of Ephesians 4. We'll get there in just a minute. Just a really a quick thing I just want to mention. Um, when Lucy and I were talking with the elder board uh, about the possibility of coming and uh, being the interim pastor after Steve Anderson, um, I had mentioned to them that we had already had some commitments, and they were very pleased to say, that's fine with us. And one of those commitments is that every year, Lucy and I um, travel to Africa, and specifically to the country of Uganda, where we are working with a ministry there that trains pastors. And I've had the, the, the privilege over these last few years to prepare them to develop their own interim pastor ministry in Uganda, something I don't think is anywhere in Africa. And so Lucy and I are going to be leaving um, Friday, and we'll be gone for about 11, 12 days. Um, so one, we would love for you to pray for us. If you have done any traveling internationally that far, crossing nine time zones is a physical challenge, um, which creates then mental and spiritual challenges as well. So we would really appreciate you all praying for us while we're gone. Lucy and I both are going to be teaching in some training seminars, uh, as well as just ongoing development of our relationships uh, with church leaders and denominational leaders. And so we would really appreciate your prayers for us um, while we're away. So just wanted to let you know that that's going to be happening later this week. Do you remember when... Super Bowl advertisements were almost better than the game itself. And do you remember watching this one several years ago? Watch this. Why are some advertisements like that so memorable? Whoever are the creative geniuses behind that, they're memorable when they're able to tap into our reality because they somehow touch life as we know it. So those two soldiers, don't they really clearly reflect the way that sometimes the conflicts that we are having with other people feel to us? 
that because of the hurt we have experienced, because of the wounds that we now carry, because of the painful differences of opinion or perspectives between us and that other person, now there is an uncrossable border between the two of us. Now, the border may have only been created yesterday. For some of you, the border happened in the car on the way here to church this morning. And for some of you, the border has been there for years. The result, though, of any of those time frames is that two people are living with a level of hostility and suspicion, and they've got their guard up. The gate of open access into each other's lives has been shut, and it's locked. Not only that, but the line of demarcation is really clearly seen, and the safety is now off of all weapons. So what's it going to take? What's it going to take to break through a stalemate that exists between a husband and a wife? To see animosity replaced by kindness between siblings? To see tension reduced to a point where there's sincere peace between a parent and a child? To see conflict dissolve away to a caring response to one another between friends, between co-workers, between church members. I don't have to tell you, it's going to take more than a soft drink. And that's why this morning we are finishing up after a couple of weeks together of a journey to discover what does the Bible have to say to us about those times when we disagree, when we have an interpersonal conflict with someone else, when there is an offense between two of us. And that's why Psalm 133.1 has been our guiding star all through these five weeks together. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so the passages that we have been looking at over each of these weeks have helped us to see that our conflicts are not problems that we're to avoid, nor are they wars that we've just got to win but rather they are opportunities for the Spirit of God to mold and shape us more into the image of Jesus Christ. But when that, that whole process, it's, it's rarely easy, and it's rarely instantaneous. But if we'll begin to follow what the Scriptures invite us to do, we can experience that genuine unity that Psalm 133.1 talks about, that it is both enjoyable and it's life-giving to us. So as we finish our series this morning, what I'd like to do is let Paul have the final word. That's why I want you to open your Bibles or open your devices to the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to then also be going in a little bit into Ephesians chapter 5. Because what Paul does for us here is give us the practical, get-down-and-dirty directions for facing our conflicts with other people, regardless of who started it and regardless of who's more at fault. Look at verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul begins and says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Notice how Paul begins by pointing out how each of us, we tend to guard our borders. Like these soldiers in the video. Conflict creates this border. 
And it's a border that I am going to guard at all costs. And Paul identifies that there are six ways we tend to guard the border, and there are very defensive-oriented responses. Now, let me tell you ahead of time, the first three are internal responses. Other people may not know we're having them. We know. Then the last three are external responses. Those internal ones tend to then come out of us. What are the six? Well, first, look at verse 31. One of our internal responses when we're guarding our border is bitterness. That word describes our internal sense of animosity or a harshness inside of us towards that person because of the pain that they have caused us. It's the feeling that in this relationship, now there is a battle, there is a war going on between us, and I resent what you said, I resent what you did. Bitterness. That's one way we can kind of guard our borders. Look at the second one. Wrath. The word Paul uses here describes an internal indignation or rage. In other words, the temperature inside of us begins to escalate. In other words, we're thinking on the inside. We're not saying it outside yet. On the inside, we're thinking, you should not have done that to me. This should not have happened to me. And you kind of sense the temperature beginning to grow. Third, another internal guarding response is anger. That is the passionate displeasure over what has occurred. You know how the cartoon characters are often described as being angry? What do do they physically show? they got steam coming out their ears. That's almost what it feels like because the temperature has risen to a point where we are just boiling on the inside. We are disturbed at how this is not just, this is not fair, and it begins to fuel a lot of other emotions inside of us. Those are the three internal responses. Bitterness, wrath, and anger. And what they do is potentially fuel then three external responses. Now people can see it. What are the three Paul mentions? Clamor. Some of your translations have the word brawling. So this is a verbal outcry with a lot of volume. It's almost yelling at someone, how dare you? What were you thinking? Because we believe this is not right. And this is where the, the, the internal responses of bitterness and wrath and anger are now, are now pouring out from our mouth gate. Now again, remember, we're guarding our border here. So out of a need to defend ourselves, we rally support or try to rally support for the wrong that was done to us and we want the support of others because of the hurt we have over the conflict. So look at the next uh, guarding response, slander. This is talking to others with abusive words intended to humiliate, shame, or trash the reputation of someone else. Make no mistake about it, slander is a form of seeking to punish that other person. 
And the sixth response, which is the third external response, notice Paul says is malice. This is acting in a manner which makes that other person suffer as we think we've suffered. So there is an intentional, mean-spirited act to inflict on that other person pain or injury, either personally or professionally. Those are the typical guarding kind of responses that are very defensive-oriented at our border. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And guess what? When we engage in those, it does not lead us anywhere good in our relationships. For these responses simply aggravate the conflict. All they do is further entrench each side more deeply, don't they? All they do is raise the walls all the higher. The silence goes deeper. And the facial expressions of of irritation become even more profound. These defensive responses, all six of them, internal and external, simply create more tension at the border as sabers are rattled and as occasionally we throw artillery shells at one another. So what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves responding like that? Well, what does the text tell us? That's probably the most important thing. And if you've noticed when you're following along, I skipped a little phrase, didn't I? Between the fifth and sixth response, what does Paul say? He says, put away all of these responses. So some of your translations (coughs) say, get rid of. Now, don't miss the major point Paul is making. We have a choice. We have a choice over both our emotional response and our behavioral response when we're tempted to guard our border. So the phrase put away literally means to remove by seizing control. So imagine the police receive an anonymous tip that there is a terrorist in a certain house making pipe bombs. So the SWAT team arrives. A shock grenade is thrown through the window. The the assault team breaks down the the front door. The suspect is is arrested, and the room full of explosives is secured. The man is removed from the house because he's under the control of the police. The incendiary materials are likewise removed from the house because the police have seized control. Now, we may not be able to control, in fact, we can't control what life brings us. Paul's point is, though, we can control our responses. By the power of God's Spirit within us, we can seize control of our emotions and get rid of those defense-oriented acts before they explode all over those around us. In some ways, in verse 31, Paul is just saying, just say no. But you know what? Just saying no to these things is not enough to resolve the conflict when any of us have been hurt. 
we also need to say yes. And that's where we go in verse 32. So Paul now turns from how I can guard my borders to how I should now give at my borders. It's kind of like the video we just watched. The offer of a bottle of Coke created a surprising turn of events, didn't it? Um, the border was changed by the sweep of a sword and, and by the movement of a, of a boot. Of a boot. And, and the pleasure of a cold drink, what did it do? It brought, it brought smiles to their faces. But in a moment, it was gone. As they turned to continue to guard duty. And as they turned to continue with that sword, brought the line of demarcation back to its original position. What does that tell us? What that tells us is that there are a lot of options out there for pe- that people try to use to resolve their border disputes, but they don't last. So people try the giving of a gift. Uh, they put together a major hell of uh, holiday celebration. They, they go on a vacation together, and that may bring a brief smile, but it doesn't open the border permanently. Instead, those six guard-oriented responses are only removed as we seize control of them, and then we replace them with something else. So Paul tells us here and now in verse 32 to choose not to guard the border, but to give three specific responses. First, he says, choose to be kind. Kindness, acting in a way that is best for that other person and will be most beneficial for that other person. So what's Paul telling us? Don't sugarcoat this. He is asking us, in the midst of experiencing hurt in my relationship with that other person, that I am to do what is for their best. That is not our natural reaction, is it? Folks, that's why it's supernatural. Only the followers of Jesus Christ have this miraculous ability to choose kindness in the middle of hurt and pain and woundedness. But he doesn't stop with kindness. What else does he say? There's something else to say yes to, being tenderhearted. That means literally, some of your translations say, having compassion. Now, Why is compassion important? Why is tenderheartedness so important? Think about this. When we are guarding our borders in a defensive way, what are we really protecting? Our hearts. We don't want to be hurt again. So if I am going to say yes to being tenderhearted, that means that giving at the border means I'm keeping my heart tenderly engaged with that person, even though everything inside of me is screaming to shut them out. So I mentioned this two weeks ago, that being compassionate means we realize that we could have done the same thing that they did to us if the situation had just been reversed a little bit. 
Being compassionate means I'm going to release them from a perfectionistic standard of obedience and performance that even I can't live up to. And compassion means that I'm not going to condone what they did, but I totally understand how they got to that place of what they did. By the way, tenderhearted, that's the same word for pity that we looked at in Matthew chapter 18 two weeks ago that described the heart of the king towards the one who had the enormous debts. Kindness. Say yes. Say yes to tenderheartedness. Third uh, response, and boy, this is the clincher. We choose forgiveness. Notice there at the end of verse, or there in the middle of verse 32. And notice we are to forgive as we have been forgiven by Christ. Okay, how, how does that work? Well, maybe this will be of help. When the New Testament authors talk about the concept of forgiveness, they'll use one of two different uh, Greek words. One of those Greek words describes forgiveness as a releasing, much like releasing the grip I have with my hand on, on, on an object. So part of forgiving means I'm releasing that person from any obligation. In other words, the debt's erased. It's also a releasing of the offense, and I, I, I remove any consequences that I have control over. It's also a releasing of my expectation to exact punishment. Instead, I leave any of that in God's hands to satisfy the need of justice as only He sees fit. So I'm releasing my expectation that I get to be judge, jury, and executioner in this situation. That's one of the words for forgiveness, a releasing. But there's a second word that the New Testament authors often use for forgiveness, and it describes forgiveness as a gift. Now, remember, again, two weeks ago we were talking about this, that this word, grace, and the word gift are the same word. This is the second word for forgiveness. It is also in that same root idea of gift, grace, and forgiveness. Folks, this is powerful stuff. So when we forgive, we are giving that other person a gift, a gift that they don't deserve, mm -hmm. a gift that they can't earn, they never didn't earn it, and a gift that can't be repaid. It's a matter of grace that I give. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. So I don't know if this will be of help at all, um, but I'll throw it out there. Here's my definition of what I consider to be New Testament forgiveness. Just for you to consider, it's this. Forgiveness is when I graciously give that other person the gift of releasing them of their debt to me of obligation, consequences, or justice. See, that's why I'm trying to blend these two words together. Release and grace. 
So let's put all this together, pull all this together. I hope you can appreciate the power of forgiveness, both in giving it to someone else and receiving it from someone else. So when someone else has hurt you, when they have offended you, when they have wounded you, and you choose to forgive them, releasing them of their debt to you, you are making four promises. Promise number one, you are promising I will not dwell on this incident any longer. Promise number two, I will not bring this incident up to use it against you. Promise number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And promise number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Can you imagine that kind of power, the power of forgiveness being released in your relationships with others? I mean, after all, it is so easy to guard our borders instead when we've been hurt. But the power of Jesus Christ inside of us allows us to choose to give at our border instead of guard. We can give kindness, we can give tenderheartedness, we can give forgiveness. That's all a part of breathing grace into those conflicts that we're going to have with other people. And then we come to one of the most unfortunate chapter divisions in the whole Bible. And by the way, you know that verse and chapter uh, in your Bible were not put there by the original authors. That was put there in the Reformation period as a way of being able to locate a specific verse or passage quickly. So this is one of those ones where they should not have divided the Ephesians here where they did. Because why? Because what's the first word of verse 1, chapter 5? Therefore... In other words, there is a logical connection to what Paul has just been saying and what he is now going to say. Paul now finishes in chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2 by mentioning how the grace that we want to give, how is it motivated at my borders? Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're to be motivated to breathe grace into our potential interpersonal conflicts because we were made to imitate like a child. In other words, when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, a whole new relationship is created. God becomes our Heavenly Father, and I have become now one of His dearly loved children. And what's the very natural thing for young children to do with their fathers? They imitate them. So watch them at the dinner table. Spaghetti is being served. Dad takes his fork, sticks it into the noodles, and he begins to twist the fork to get the noodles to wrap around it. That's the way he eats it. Watch the kids. What are they doing? They're taking their fork, sticking it in the spaghetti, and turning it and eating it too. Instead of as you should do it, and that is cut your noodles appropriately, you know, with a fork. But their father, they're imitating dad. Or watch a young, young one with his matchbox out on the floor, and he's got two cars, and he's got them kind of bashing up into, into each other, and then he finally yells, get out of my way, you idiot. Guess where he heard that from? Hmm. 
And if our Heavenly Father promises to respond to the enormity of our debt with Him, with grace, then what am I to do? We've all heard the little phrase that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Let me give you another one. Imitation is the surest form of family. Does the apple fall far from the tree? (laughs) Breathing grace into my interpersonal conflicts, whether they are major or minor, is to be motivated by my imitation as a child of my heavenly Father. But there's a second motivation. Verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's the second motivation? I am to love as I have been loved. And how have I been loved by Jesus? Look at verse 2. It was sacrificial. It cost Jesus something deep. So when that other person hurts us, and we're tempted to guard the border in bitterness and rage or anger or brawling or slander or malice, there is a price I have got to pay to seize control. Remove those responses and be gracious in giving them kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Why? Because I'm choosing to love as I have been loved. But look at verse 2 one more time. It's called a fragrant offering, the sacrifice. Which means there's going to be times when you choose to forgive that other person. Nobody else is going to know about it, but he does. And he's going to receive it like a fragrant offering from your life. Let me give you some final observations. First, based on the fact that forgiveness is repeatedly commanded of us in the New Testament, that means that forgiveness can be unilateral. We don't have to wait for that other person to ask us to forgive them, to earn that forgiveness, to show that they've changed their mind and repented. None of that is necessary. We can forgive them regardless of what they do or do not do, even if they never even come and ever apologize to us. Forgiveness can be unilateral. And somewhat close to that, a second observation, forgiveness does not wait for them to come to us. When there's been an offense, when there has been an offense and it needs to be addressed, initiate Go to them in the spirit of wanting to breathe grace into the relationship between the two of you, so you be the one that takes the first step. Don't wait. Third observation I just want to make. Trust and forgiveness are two different issues. Why? Forgiveness can be one-sided. It doesn't take two people to cooperate. You can choose to forgive unilaterally. Trust on the other side, ooh, that's different. It takes both parties 
to be willing to work on it to rebuild broken trust. So that means you can forgive someone, but not trust them yet. Forgiving someone does not mean that you automatically put yourself into a vulnerable position to be hurt again by them. Working on trust may mean that for a while there are some boundaries that have to be established. Trust, forgiveness, two different issues. Carissa Smith took her four-month-old daughter with her to the library one day as she held her in this little sack in front. Her little one babbled softly as she was looking at some books in a, in a row of books when she heard an older man on the other side gruffly shout at her, tell that kid to shut up or I will. Here's how Carissa responded. She came around the corner and said, I'm very sorry for whatever in your life has caused you to be so disturbed by a happy baby, but I will not tell my baby to shut up and I will not let you do so either. Now, she braced herself for a, an outburst back at her, but instead what she got were, her, were his tears. He took a deep breath and then said softly, I apologize. Carissa said he looked at me, he looked at my daughter. My daughter smiled at him, you know, chicken the legs, what they do. And the man went on to say, my son died when he was two months old. He died from SIDS over 50 years ago. Carissa sat down next to him, and he described how his anger had just grown since that time. It led to his marriage failing. He was in, just living in utter isolation from other people. Carissa said, I asked him, tell me about your son, which he did. He smiled back and forth with my daughter and eventually says, can I hold her? Carissa handed her baby over and cuddled her and let his head rest against her head for a minute. And Carissa said, I saw his shoulders just relax. He returned her to me with a heartfelt thank you. I thanked him for sharing his story with me, and he very quickly got up and left. Instead of guarding her border... Carissa gave that man something totally unexpected. She chose to say yes to kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. You can do that too. And that's why I believe it is so wonderful that we are ending this sermon series on a Sunday when we get to celebrate communion. Why? Because a moment ago when I said to you, you can do this too, on the inside some of you are saying, I can't do this. Because yes, you've heard the scriptures talk about the importance of unity. But you're not sure how much it's important to you. You've heard the Scriptures talk about what to do when someone has hurt you, and you're not sure you're really ready to release that. 
I can't do that. I want to hang on to it. You're not sure what to do when you've hurt that other person that you still are you really willing to go and, and humble yourself before them and say, will you forgive me? And there's something inside of you that's saying, I couldn't do what Carissa did. Man, I would have been all over him instead of giving him kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. That's true, you can't. But Jesus Christ inside you can. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got that ability to seize control and remove those defensive guard-focused responses and give those things that Christ says instead to give because He's given them to you. And so maybe this morning that's exactly what needs to happen with some of you. You know you can't because you've never asked Jesus Christ in. And this morning the first place to start is by asking Jesus Christ into your life, accepting Him as your Savior, to forgive you, for you to experience the love of God in your life first. But for some of the rest of you, it means this morning, maybe that sense of conviction has been there over weeks and you've not done anything about it, but before we celebrate communion together, to be able to say, Lord, I'm going to bring this and put it at your feet this morning. This relationship that has so for so long been hurt. There's a border there's defensiveness, and I'll do whatever I need to do to lay it down. Why? Because these elements that we are going to be taking in just a moment, the little wafer, simplifying, I mean, symbolizing Christ's body, and the little bit of juice symbolizing His blood are meant to remind us what's been done for us, and therefore what we can give to others. So the elders are going to come forward at this time. They're going to prepare to serve you these elements. And as they do, understand, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, even if it this morning you've done it, then as one of your first acts, I invite you, anybody who knows the Lord, to come and let these elements be a part of remembering what He's done for us.